You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, TFC. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Uh, To those who are watching at home, we welcome you, we love you, and we miss you, and we pray for you as God keeps you, and as he cares for you and keeps watch over your soul and uh, over your body that you're well. Uh, For those who are are gathered, um, we welcome you back. In the right and biblical view of what God calls us to, we should long to be together and that we, we need each other. We, we need to be with each other and that by any means possible, we should long as we are to attempt to meet regularly as the scriptures command us to for the glory of Christ, which is made manifest as we gather in unity and for the joy and the spiritual welfare of our souls. Uh, Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head. And Hebrews 10 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we indeed long to be together and and we are glad that we are able to once again. But for those of you who are at home, we pray that God is caring for you and watching over you. And I indeed also want to welcome our K through five children into the service with us. Um, I could think of nothing more impactful than our children who are at this age and are fully capable to sit in service with us, watching and listening and observing and being part of corporate worship. And parents, my encouragement to you is don't feel the need to assess at a hyper-micro level what your children are understanding week to week. Of course, facilitate their sitting and observing the best that you can. And of course, have discussions with them on the way home in good parental discipleship. But keep in mind that the cumulative effect of their simple observance of corporate worship, preaching and singing and love and joy and unity and community and response happening among their spiritual family in a genuine display of love for God and love for others will produce long-term effects. Like them noticing that this faith is real, that the word of God is real, that this family of faith is one they can trust and that this is a people who genuinely love the Lord and seek to glorify him. And in every way, that will be far more impactful than a a separate age-specific 
curriculum separated and concentrated on their life stage. God-centered worship is supremely important in the family life. And we view Sunday morning similarly to the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration as an awesome place of glory where you fall on your face, almost speechless in the presence of God. So we're not going to have a version of children's sermons as a part of Sunday morning as we believe it'll weaken the spiritual intensity of worship in the long run. But for an hour and a half out of the 168 hours in a week, it is right that we should sustain maximum intensity of moving reverence and worship. And of course, this will only carry weight with parents who really love that, who really love to meet with God in worship themselves and want their children breathing that air. The greatest stumbling block to children's worship is parents who do not cherish their own worship. So parents, your aim is to show delight rather than duty. Millions of children never see their parents sing and sit with eager expectation for God's word. Of course, this service will be over the child's head. It's supposed to be. They are beginners, but so is the English language. When they are born, uh, the English language is over their head, yet we don't seek to put them only in environments to foster that. We immerse them in the English language every day, and while they do not understand the meaning of it, we hope and expect them to grow up and use it. This, I believe, will curb the curve of young people leaving the church because they never had a chance to watch a robust and radical faith from adults in service. So it's okay. Have a long-term approach. Know that even if they don't understand, more is being caught than taught. And a sense of solemn reverence in the presence of God is what your children will experience. They will encounter God. And don't worry if they say that they're bored or it's too long. The principles that we just discussed and the principles that the Bible show us are still true in the long run, whether they are, are bored or it's long or, or not. And more will come on this in the coming weeks. But for now, let us begin to rethink traditional seeker models that aim to accomplish simply chipper, flippant, trivial, or chatty worship for the children, and let us as families draw near to the presence of our holy and big God together. In addition to this word about our children in service, which again, we will continue on in shepherding you in, I also encourage you in regard to the virus. Um, I encourage you to read an article entitled Church don't let the coronavirus divide you by the gospel coalition. I think it can help us to maintain unity as we prudently move forward in whichever direction this virus takes us. This article helps us to value love and unity and humility above all else, as well as helps us to see, I believe, that if we cared about the mission of God, and the worship of God, as much as we cared about the debate about the virus, we would reach the world. These things are easy to be vocal about, but they require very little faith. And so this is a great article for Christians and the church. And I'm praying for humility and a spirit of unity myself and for our congregation. And I think if we were half as passionate about evangelism and discipleship and worship 
and God's word and holiness and mission and the glory of God as we are about COVID, we'd reach the world for Christ. And so let's ask ourselves: am I as vocal about my convictions about Christ as I am about my convictions regarding COVID? Am I as passionate about his word and holiness as I am about COVID? Do I fight for souls as much as I fight for or against certain COVID protocols being obeyed or disobeyed? After all, our eternities are far more important Others' eternities are far more important than this life. So I'm praying as we start back together and as we move forward in unity and humility, that we would show love and respect and worship and holiness and mission during these days and our kids and our families would be encouraged and that we would grow and that for those of you who are at home, that we would uh, love you well and that those of, uh, of our uh, congregation who are gathered in person, that we would uh, be together and love each other well. And so one thing that we can rejoice in as we close all of this is that the gospel will go forth. If there's something that we can unify in and rejoice in together is that the gospel will continue and is continuing to go forth. And do you see it? Are you glad about it? God will see to it that his gospel continues to go forth and it is still moving forward. Um, it, It cannot be thwarted. We can rejoice in that. He is great. And, and he is, is great at doing what he does best in saving souls. How great it is that we can commonly rejoice together and that the gospel is still going forward. And that's a good thing. We can breathe a sigh of relief in that. We can rejoice in that. We're okay. It's okay. Uh, the gospel is still moving forward. And that's what we collectively care about. It's outside of ourselves. And that's the best news that we can receive. And, you know, if we think to ourselves, hey, everybody, let's take heart. It's still going forward. God's mission is still advancing. And so Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. It will go forth to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 59, 1 says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. So with those items as an encouragement to us, as a welcome to those coming back, as a we love you to those still at home, as an encouragement to our families and our children, as an encouragement to the unity of our body, even in light of COVID, and as an encouragement to us that the gospel is still going forward as a way of introduction, presenting all of that to us as an encouragement, Let us now go to God's word and you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, verses 37 through 45. Luke chapter nine, verses 37 through 45. Today I've entitled the message, Living by Faith in the Word of God. Living by Faith in the Word of God. And we will see today in our passage, the testimony of unbelief in the Word of God and the importance of faith in the word of God, believing in and trusting in God and his word. We can trust him and we can trust his word because he's God, because he's God. So we should live lives trusting him and obeying and following by faith his word. Now, this seems cliche and it seems commonplace to talk about faith in his word, but 
The result should be that we live lives trusting his word more than what we feel or more than what we think or more than what we want. We should spend life, our lives, seeking, reading, treasuring his words. Even if they seem to be overly sober or difficult, we should believe his words. Even in circumstances that seem to point to the contrary, we should live by his words above all else. And we not only trust his words for salvation, we must live by them as we follow him. We must live by faith in his words as we follow him. This is what Jesus will establish really for the first time today. And this is what he's calling his disciples to. And this is what he's calling us as the church to, to trust his words by faith. This is how his followers will follow him. They must live by faith in his words. Not that they believe that he is the Christ. Now that they know he's going to suffer, where he's going is rejection and suffering. They must now live by faith in his words. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught. And so we are established in the faith as we follow Christ in the same way in which we received him, by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in his word. We are saved in that way and we continue to follow him in that way. Just as you received him by faith in his word, so we must walk in him by faith in his word. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need to endure. We need endurance. Yet a little while... And the coming one will come and he will not only uh, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Jesus is coming. We need endurance to continue going. And as we are waiting for him to come, we should live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We need to live by faith so we don't shrink back. Faith in his words. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. By faith in his word, we preserve our souls. We do not shrink back and we are not therefore destroyed. We need to be those who don't shrink back, but live by faith in his word. Galatians 3, 5 says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and by faith? God works. And when we have faith, when we trust in his words, when we hear his words, trust them by faith, he works. He works. We are those who hear his word and we are those who believe his word. And this is how God works through his followers. Hebrews 11 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We must follow him and trust him by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. We must draw near, believing that he is God, believing that he exists, and believing his word and his promises that he rewards those who trust him by faith for a lifetime. So today we will see this. We're going to see that Jesus is calling us, his apostles, his disciples, and then us as the church to follow him by faith in his words. Today we're going to see the apostles blow it. 
they're really going to blow it. In their unbelief, they're going to they're going to reject Jesus's words and not have faith and trust in his words. We're going to see their unbelief and we're going to see Jesus's reaction to them. And it's a it's a harsh rebuke. And we will see why they will need to live by faith for the future. So we're going to see their unbe- they're blowing it. They're unbelief. We're going to see Jesus's reaction to it. And we're going to see why Jesus is emphasizing and stressing that they are going to need to live by faith because something is going to happen in the future, namely his death. That's going to require his disciples, his apostles to live by faith because it's going to look like things are not going the way they should be going. It's going to look like Jesus has lost. And therefore, when he's rejected, when he's turned over, they're going to have to live by faith and not by sight. They're going to have to trust his words that he had commanded them, that he told them and not release and not go away and not have unbelief just because circumstances seem difficult. So my prayer for you today is that you would be people who live by faith in his words his promises, his commands, that your life would be built upon faith in his truth because you believe that he is God and that his word stands. Now, when we say faith, what we don't mean is that you would see faith simply as worshiping in spirit uh, based on little to no truth. That's not Christianity. We are people of the book, people who pay close attention to the intricate detail of his truth. Don 4.24 says those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Our faith as we live by faith is not based on nothing. It's not based on what I feel or I want to be true. And then therefore, I'm just going to have faith that it's going to happen. He is calling us to be people who live by faith in his truth, faith in his word, believing his commands, believing his promises, believing his words, and therefore trusting in them in such a way that we live by faith in them. And then he works through us. It's not hanging on nothing. Not that our faith would be a view of spirituality, which is more important than the word of God. Not that we would avoid the Bible's authority or authority in general, as our culture loves to do, right? We abhor government leaders, church leaders, medical professionals, church membership, and the list goes on because we want to be free and spiritual and live by faith. But that's not living by faith. That's living in a spirituality that is not trusting in the word of God. We say that we are called as believers not to be just some spiritual culture living in free spiritedness. We are called to live by faith in believing God's word because he said it because he's God and then acting upon his word because we believe. His words. So again, to follow Jesus and to be effective missionally for his glory, we must live by faith in his words because we trust him as God. And this is what he is teaching his disciples. This is what we, we aim to see. And this is what he aims to teach us. So let's pray. Let's ask God to, to help us now. To, to be people who live by faith in his words and that we would be people who do that for a lifetime. Let's pray and ask God's help before we read. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask you by your grace that you would help us to be people who live 
by faith, by faith in your words, that we would trust them, that we would hold them close and hold them dear, that we would, that we would live a life of trusting you and what you have commanded, what you have promised. Because we know that this, to endure to the end, we are gonna have to be people who trust your words by faith. There's gonna be suffering. There's gonna be consequences. There's gonna be persecution. There will be doubt. There will be fear. And yet, knowing that you are God's Christ and knowing that you have said that you will suffer and we will suffer as you have, we are required, we must live by faith because we believe you're God and we believe that faith will be required in order for us to make it to the end. We must trust in your words. As Jesus, you establish this with your disciples now, as you've established that you are the Christ, as you have established and will continue that you must suffer, and as now you move on towards teaching them what it means and how to follow you, and you call them to live by faith in your words in this text, help us too to see that we are called to live by faith in your teachings, in your word, because we too believe that you are the Christ, that you are God. Help us to live by faith because we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. As we begin in this text, keep it open in front of you because um, we're just going to go deep into it. What Jesus is establishing here is the faith necessary to follow him. It's not about the miracle. It's not about the healing. It's not about the demon. It's about the faith. As Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, the people of the Old Testament followed God. By faith, he anticipated the Messiah. As he arrives, by faith, they have believed that he is the Christ. And now by faith, they must follow him, even into suffering. As God's Christ, they must live by faith in his words. And we see this pattern in the chapter, and this pattern is repeated. Here's the pattern. Follow along with me. If you look in your, in your text with me, pay close attention. Watch this pattern. Verses 18 through 20. 
The picture is that he is God's Christ. He is not Elijah. He is not John the Baptist. He is greater. He is God's Christ. In light of that, verse 21, what we see is, or yeah, 21, what we see to 22, what we see is the picture is that this Christ must suffer. And then in verses 23 through 37, then as we spent four weeks on this, his followers now must follow him by faith, whatever the cost, believing in who he is and what his words are to them. As the father even says in the transfiguration, this is my son and therefore listen to him. So they must follow him by faith because they believe now that he is God's Christ. By faith, they must follow him because it will be required because he's going to be suffering. And by faith, they must believe his words to face this suffering. No unbelief should fill them when this occurs. So we see this pattern. God's Christ, suffer, faith required. This is the same pattern that we see repeated, a similar pattern. As we begin in this next section, we see it actually starting with the transfiguration. Here's the, the pattern again. Again, he is God's Christ. He's not Elijah. He is not John the Baptist, but he is greater. That's in the transfiguration, verses 28 through, through 36, right? We're repeating this pattern again. Then in verse 37 through 43, our verses today, they must follow him by faith because he is the Christ, because they believe in who he is. And then in verses 43 through 45, faith will be required. Why? Because this Christ is going to have to suffer. He's going to be rejected. And in the face of that suffering, they must have faith in him and his words to continue on. So the same pattern again. God's Christ. They must have faith because there's going to be suffering. And Jesus will be turned over. So we must have faith, therefore, because we believe in who he is. We live by faith. We must have faith, therefore, because it will not always play out in our sight. It will not always look like we think it's supposed to look. And so, therefore, we must live by faith in trusting in who God is and have faith in the face of persecution or suffering. They must have faith in his words because he is God's Christ. He is God. He's going to suffer, but they must believe his words and who he is and follow him anyway. This is two similar patterns. And this pattern can help us because for us, he is God. So we live by faith. He will suffer. We will suffer. It will mean things like not going as planned or opposition or attack or Things seem too far over our heads. We're underwater, but we must live by faith in his, his words. Faith because he is God. Faith because of our circumstances. Faith in him and his words. This pattern helps us. The reasons for faith are here and present. We must have faith in him because he is God. And we must have faith in him because our circumstances will be difficult. So that's the pattern here, and it will become more clear as we walk through this. So we see three points today, and we're going to be living and acting in faith in his words because of who he is in the face of his rejection. There's three points as we unfold verses 37 through 45 that Jesus is guiding them and us into living by faith. The first thing that we see in this narrative, this story, is the disciples' unbelief. The disciples' unbelief. In verses 37 through 40, here's what we read. 
On the next day, when they, had, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And so we start here in verse 37. It says on the next day. So follow along as we watch the disciples unbelief. It says on the next day. So in Matthew, Mark and Luke, all of them, the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration is followed by this story. All three of them. So the disciples inevitably deal with this directly after the transfiguration. The disciples deal with an, an inability to cast out a demon, to, to deal with a, a case of demon possession. In one scene, we have the rejoicing. In the transfiguration, we have the rejoicing of three apostles happy to be with Jesus on the mountain. And in the very next scene, we have them defeated by the powers of darkness his followers, his disciples, his apostles. And this is intentional. Uh, on the next day, so when they came down from the mountain, verse 37 says. So evidently, what we see here is that they slept on the mountain. We don't know the specifics of this, but if you look at your text, it says on the next day when they had come down from the mountain. So the, the mountaintop experience followed by their lack of faith, displaying that they must continue remembering and trusting his words by faith, but they are not. His disciples are not. So again, they're, they're coming down and evidently they slept on the mountain because what Luke says is on the next day when they had come down from the mountain. So again, we don't know the specifics, but perhaps they spend more time with the glorified Christ, John the Baptist and Elijah than what we saw in the story. Uh, surely there was more said and more seen. Perhaps maybe Elijah and John left and they debriefed and almost recovered with Jesus alone, catching their breath for what they saw. Or maybe perhaps in pure exhaustion from seeing the glorified Christ and hearing the Father's voice, maybe they just fell right asleep. And whatever the case is, Jesus and James and John and Peter, they came down the next day from the mountain. And when they come down, there's a great crowd waiting for them. This is what Luke says. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. Undoubtedly in that crowd, they were the nine other apostles, a group of believers, a group of those who didn't believe, a group of those that were adamantly rejecting Jesus, and a group who were maybe still on the fence. There was across the spectrum. And we know the, the scribes were there as well because Mark's account tells us they were there. So Mark 9, 14 says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes were arguing with them. So they had just seen the, the God uh, in his glory. They had seen the Christ. They had come down then to unbelief and chaos. They had just seen God in his glory. And they come down to unbelief and chaos and argument. And when they come down, really, this should bring back memories 
uh, for you if, if you know your Bible. When they come down, it should bring back into your mind when Moses comes down from the mountain after being in God's glory and his presence with the Ten Commandments, the shine still on his face, and then becoming angry at the unbelief of the people, how quickly they forget to follow God, how quickly they turn, how quickly they don't trust in his words. And that's the picture that Jesus is showing us here. He's been up. They've seen the face. He is God. And while they are up, the apostles, the disciples, they are not trusting his words by faith. How quickly they have forgotten. How quickly we are to turn away from trusting in his words by faith. That's the picture here. That's the point of this passage. It's not the demon possession. It's not the healing. It's faith. So as Jesus is coming down from the mountain, from the presence of his father, He's going to show this kind of same righteous anger that we even saw from Moses when he threw the tablets down. So the scribes are arguing. That's what Mark says. And the content is probably this. You say you are God's Christ. Uh, you are, say you are with God's Christ. You say that he is God's Christ. You say you are his followers. And you can't even heal this boy that has a demon possession. And the apostles are filled with unbelief in this moment. They're not able to do this. So let's uncover this a little bit more because you might be saying, well, how do we know that that's what's happening here? Um, that their unbelief is the center of, of what Jesus is showing us. Well, let's uncover this. The crowd meets him, verse 38. The crowd comes to Jesus and he says, they say, and behold, a man from the crowd, this is what Luke writes, a man comes through the crowd, pressing through the crowd, and he says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. So behold, the man comes, he cries out, teacher, look at my child. Uh, essentially, turn your gaze upon my child out of all of these people. Look at him, my only child. This man comes pushing through and asking Jesus to heal his son. This man believes in Jesus and we know that he believes in Jesus because in Matthew's account, Matthew writes, a man came up to him kneeling before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my, on my son. So he kneels and he calls him Lord and he asks for mercy. And in Luke's account here, he is calling him teacher or rabbi. He begs him literally in the midst of the crowd to turn his gaze, his attention upon the child. And so they are greatly amazed when Jesus comes down, Mark says. And Jesus asks, what are they arguing about? Luke doesn't show us this, but this is what Mark tells us that Jesus says. What are you all arguing about? And they all show up and, and they approach and this man approaches Jesus and this man begs Jesus. And the reason is what they are arguing about, why they're coming to him, verse 39, why the man is coming to him is it says, a spirit seizes him. This is what's happening. This is why they're coming to Jesus. This is why they're beg he's begging for Jesus. Behold, a spirit seizes him, verse 39. And suddenly, he suddenly cries out. It convulses him. So that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
It's a spirit that's seizing him. He suddenly cries out. He, it convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him. It won't leave him. Later on in verse 42, we see that it will throw him to the ground. Later on even, that it will make him like a corpse. Mark 9 tells us that it makes him, as we combine the Matthew and Mark account with, with this account, we get more information. It tells us that it's, it's making him mute. It's making him grind his teeth. It's making him rigid. And any times it sees a well of water, it throws the boy into the water to try to destroy him. Or any time it sees a fire to warm people, anytime people are, are making a fire or there is a fire, the, the demon throws the boy into the fire as to try to destroy him. And this is happening sporadically as the demon leads him. It's trying to destroy him. It cries out. It convulses him terribly. And this has been happening, as we see in this account, that since he was a young boy, it's been happening for years and years. This is one of the worst demons and acts of satanic force that we have seen yet, which is probably why verse 40, we see that he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. This is over their heads. This is, this is hard. This is scary. There's reason for them to have unbelief. So they thought, maybe this time it's going to be different. Maybe God's not going to do the work here. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The disciples couldn't do it. Now, why is this an act of unbelief on the part of the apostles? Why do we say that that's what's happening here? The story isn't about healing. It isn't about demon possession. It's not even about Jesus's miraculous working power as we have seen repeatedly in this gospel. None of these are the point. And we know it because as we'll see in a minute, Jesus's words, the only red letter in this particular section here before we move in, into the next verses is dealing with the lack of the disciples' faith. That's what Jesus chooses to address. It's dealing with the lack of faith of disciples. Now, why is this an act of unbelief? Well, because if we go back to chapter nine, verse one, as Jesus sent his apostles out, remember this? Here's what Jesus said. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He gave them power over all, all being the operative word, being the key word here, all. The key word here is all. That's why Jesus becomes riled here. Their lack of faith in his words and command and power was front and center. This story is telling us as as. Uh, as we see here that the disciples lacked faith. They had unbelief. They had, they had seen that he is the Christ. It's been settled. They know he's going to suffer. At least that he's been attempting to begin to tell them where he's going and what they must suffer as well. And yet now they must live by faith and they are failing to do so. And that's going to be required moving forward. And this is the establishment of this for us, even in the church and moving forward permanently. This is what will have to happen for his disciples. This story is not telling us as so many have used, that if we have faith, we can cast out demons and heal. If we just have strong enough faith, and if our faith is strong enough, if we have such great faith, 
in ourselves, as we are people of, of greater faith than maybe the next person, we can heal and cast out demons. This is not what this is about. That was the specific command to these apostles for the specific time in history to verify to the world at that time and to us in the testimony of the written word that Jesus is indeed God's Christ through the display of their power, of his power. This was for a specific time to cast out these demons to display that Jesus is the Christ. Now we have a written word that tells us how to live for Christ and to glorify him and to share him and to trust him. And we live by faith in those words, not by faith in the healing powers. We see that God glorifies himself through his word. In the former days, he spoke through the prophets and now he's spoken through his son. We trust his words in his son, believe them and follow him. And he is glorified. The displaying of this in this passage is the principle that there is a failure here for them to believe Jesus's words. And we must remember the pattern. Jesus displayed for all of them to see and hear that he is the Christ. He's God. He displayed this time and time again in his Galilean ministry from the beginning of Luke until now. That was the very essence of what was happening. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God's chosen, anointed, sent king. That's what has happened up until this point. It has been settled. Now from here, Jesus is saying, here's where I must go. I'm going to die. He's going to set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to teach him that he must suffer. And from here, he's going to teach his followers that they must follow him and live by faith. That's the point here. They're going to have to live by faith, trusting him following him, the cost of discipleship, trusting that even as he suffers, he is doing what's right and he is God. And therefore we follow him by faith, trusting in who he is because it's been settled that he is God's Christ. So we follow, we, we live by faith and, and we trust in his words, even if he, it means suffering. This is what Jesus is establishing now. He's God and he has displayed it time and time again. If they really believe it, they should have faith in his words. They should act in, in belief, not unbelief, which is why Jesus reacts the way that he does here. As Jesus' reaction will tell us in just a moment, it will point to the fact that the unbelief was the issue. Unbelief in his words, based upon who he is, God will work powerfully in them as they hear his words by faith and believe them. And Matthew's account later on in the story, the disciples asked why they couldn't cast the demon out, which again gives us insight into what's really happening here. It gives us insight into the first part of the fact that this was due to unbelief. And that's what's being shown here. Matthew 17, 19 through 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The issue is unbelief. And Jesus is saying, if you believe in my words, if you will trust them, if you will trust in who I am and therefore trust in my words, the metaphor of the mountain implies you will accomplish great things for my namesake because I will do them through you as you trust in my words. That's what he's saying here. You will not 
only do what you think you can do. You will do what you think is impossible to do because nothing is impossible for me. And if I'm doing the work, you will see what you cannot do be done. Because when you hear my words and trust in them and believe in them, not only in this way for salvation, but for faith and living, God will work powerfully. This is not faith is not only required for salvation, it's required for them to follow him continually. Galatians 3:14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is how we are saved. This is how we first trust in Jesus by faith in who he is. But then we live by this even as we continue on. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's for the first time of salvation and belief and for therefore living, trusting in his word by faith. This is the way his disciples are supposed to live in and by this faith. We experience the presence and the power of God. That's how it works. Faith in his word connects us to God's work. We seek him by meditation on his word and we believe in what we hear and see and they fail to do so. God works powerfully in his followers by his spirit who hear his word, trust his word, and by faith believe his word. That's the connection between his word and his faith and our faith in his spirit and his work. This would be the work of God through them if they would only remember his words and believe them, they, they wouldn't be as many have abused their own work. This is what wouldn't be that and maybe the strength of their own faith and that it depends on them to accomplish these miracles for great excitement's purposes is that they would trust his words and what he said because of who he is, even in the face of this difficult circumstance of the demon, of this evil of the demon, they would trust his words by faith and therefore God would do the work. It's not hanging on nothing, this faith. It's not just a free spiritedness. It's trust in his words to bring about God's work. That's why Mark's account says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately. Now this was after the healing. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, Jesus just said in two different places because of lack of faith and now lack of prayer. But the combination is here. The reason is that this is faith in God's work. It's belief in his words. It's therefore trusting in him and seeking him to do the work. It's faith in who he is and what he can do. And therefore, it's a following him even in the face of evil. Faith in his words connects them to God's work. Let me give you an example. If before I come up to preach on a Sunday morning, I'm sitting in my chair and I'm nervous or I'm frightened or I'm scared or I'm exhausted or I got something on my mind that is really a burden on my, on my shoulders and I'm tired and my, or maybe my mind is going back and forth about some things that I'm discouraged or despondent about, or maybe I don't feel like I got a grip on the text the way I want to. And I remember some truths from God's word in that moment to help me. Maybe Isaiah's words, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I hear those words. I, I think about, I meditate upon those words because I've memorized them. They're in my heart. And as I go up, I trust his words by faith. I say, God, you, you say you're going to help me. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my best trusting in the fact that you are going to fulfill your promises and, and help me. That faith in his word connects me to the spirit's work as the spirit then works through my faith and trusting his words. And I trust his words and I believe them. And then I obey by believing by faith in his words and the, the spirit works. And so it's not dependent on me. It's dependent on God. My faith in his words connects me to what he is doing and his work. We must live by faith. And the same is true for 10,000 other scenarios. The question is, will you walk by faith? Will you live by faith? And it doesn't have to be strong faith. It doesn't have to be some great faith, but just belief in his words. Actually, and before healing the boy, which just again shows us the main point of this passage as dealing with unbelief, Mark 9, 22 through 24 the, the, the father says this, but you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to them, if I can do anything, because the man, sorry, said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And so the father who believes in Jesus is begging Jesus and says, if you can, Jesus says, if I can, I can do anything. You must believe. And the father says, I believe in you. I will trust you. But even in my faith in you, help my lack of faith in you. It's not some great faith that God calls us to. It's a belief in who he is and a trusting in his words. This is what his disciples must live by to glorify him. This is what they must live by because suffering's coming. But he is God. He is the Christ. They must remember his words and live by them. So this was a failure of unbelief on the disciples part. Even though he was displayed who he is, even though displayed in the pattern earlier of who he is and what he must suffer. And therefore, in light of that, they should follow him by faith. They fail here. They should trust him because he's God and because he's said what they should do. And this is why we as Christians should live by his word. We can't, we can't stray from his word. That's why you must be in his word every day. You must be in his word every single day because you must live by faith in his words. It's not hanging on nothing. They must trust his words by faith. You can't trust his words and his promises and his commands if you don't see them. You must read them daily. You can't treasure what you don't see. You can't live by faith. You got nothing. Your day will be filled of trusting in nothing or treasuring nothing. In and of yourself, you're dead. You're cold. You got to see his words every day so that you can treasure them and you can delight in them and you can trust them by faith. And so this is why we must hear his words in order to live by faith. We have faith and not in some mystical thing that we think we can hear or feel or see. It's in his words, his revealed word, his scriptures for us, very words, audibly for them, written for us. So the disciples, they show their unbelief. Number two, what we see in this passage is Jesus' response to the disciples' unbelief. Just briefly, as we look at 40 through 43, 
He says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. What we see is Jesus's response to disciples' unbelief. Jesus's response to them was a harsh one. It was harsh because he was calling them to live by faith. His response was to display then also for the last time that we even really see in Luke is divine power once again to heal and to perform a miracle. We will see very little of this moving forward and therefore we will see mostly his words and their, uh, and their necessity to trust in his words and his teaching to live by faith and what he says. So we read in verse 41, Jesus speaks as he's applying it to the whole, not only to the disciples who didn't trust in him for the healing, but then he speaks to everybody. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. He's speaking to everyone. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, he says. How long am I to be with you or to bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus is saying here, you're faithless in me and my words. You're twisted and not believing me and my words, seeking me for miracles and wonders, but not having faith in me as God and my presence to trust me in repentance and faith. He's rebuking them and the scribes and the crowds, even in their unbelief and the apostles as well for not believing his words. These words in Luke's account are central. These are the central words, Jesus's response. The point here is a lack of faith. That is what Jesus is concerned with. This is the close of Jesus's Galilean ministry where he is established. It has been settled that he is the Christ. This is his identity. There will be little to no account of miracles post this in Luke's account to establish this. He's setting his face now to Jerusalem, what he must suffer and what they must follow by faith. He will now teach them his ways and they must have faith. They must must live by this. He's establishing here in the greater story that faith in following him because of who he is in the face of evil and suffering, he is calling them to trust in him by obedience and faith. This is what he's calling of them. They didn't believe his words. They didn't have faith in his calling, his identity is in the face of evil, especially. And this is what it will be required especially as Jesus is betrayed and killed. They're going to have to trust his words by faith. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to show you who I am for you to trust in me? How long do I have to speak more words to you before you trust me and live by faith in my words? How long am I going to bear with you and your fluctuating faith? How long do I have to give testimony that I'm the Christ? How many times am I going to have to tell you that I'm going to suffer? So don't be surprised when it happens. I've spoken my words. I've shown you this. Even in the face of evil, believe me. Have faith in me. Trust in my words. Believe me. Trust me. And his response was not only a rebuke, but it was a call to faith. It was a reestablishment once again by his grace of who he is. Because he also acts by his loving kindness, a grace-filled work for the boy and his father. And for the apostles, once again, okay, I'm going to do this and show you. So he says he comes here in verse 42. Here's what he does. He not only rebukes them and calls them to faith in his words, but then he helps their faith one more time here by saying, all right, bring the son here. 
While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground, verse 42, and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked not only the disciples, but the demon, saying, trust me by faith, and I'm going to rebuke the demon and show you again that I'm the Christ. And the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. No problem, because he's God. In case everyone forgot, in just this short amount of time, I'm God's Christ. You can trust me. Trust my words even in the face of evil. Mark's account says in Mark 9, 20 through 27, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed him. The boy fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that, that most said, this boy's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. Matthew tells us, as Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him, the boy was healed instantly. Matthew 17. So Jesus shows us the real issue. And it doesn't focus on the miracle or on the demon. It focuses on their unbelief. His rebuke of their lack of faith and him calling them to have faith in him and his words is based upon who he is, even in the face of evil. He's showing them once again that he is the Christ and that he can be trusted because he's God. In verse 43, what we see is in response to this, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Like once again, did you not know already? I'm the king. I'm the God. I'm God's Christ. I'm the anointed king that was to come, that is to come, that is here. You can trust me. You must trust my words. You must follow me because I'm the Christ. Even in the face of evil, you must live by faith. They were astonished. This terrible situation, some of the worst that we've seen yet, and Jesus proves his messiahship by his divine power once again. They should trust him. And this is what Jesus says to him. How many times will we fluctuate in trusting me and my words? Even when overwhelming evil comes, how long are we going to fluctuate here? Trust me, trust my words simply because I said them. An act of faith of trusting in him and his words. He will work as we do this. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We trust in him. We work it out. We, we live by faith because we trust that he's working. He's doing the work. So we work it out and we trust and we follow and we obey by faith because we believe he's working. He's doing the work. His promise of doing the work, his future grace of doing the work is what we trust in. It gives us the power to do and to follow him by faith. We can work because we trust by faith in his working. And so the disciples' unbelief, Jesus' response to the disciples' unbelief is trust me by faith, this is who I am. I will remind you once again, even in the face of evil. 
And thirdly, just to touch on these last verses, all leading to and for the purpose of, number three, the call of faith in his words. Jesus looks at the disciples in their unbelief and responds in rebuke because he is calling them to live by faith in him and his words permanently. Here's what you must do. Here's how you must live. Verse 43b, what we see is he says, but Luke writes, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And so about this saying, so this, what we see here, And titles, once again, in scripture, as you might know, titles can be unhelpful and even detrimental in your reading because they're not in the original letters or the biblical context. So we would read this as one continuous flow of thought, removing the title in between 43a and 43b. But I think here it's helpful because in some ways, what we see in from 43a to 43b, there's an intentional change in direction, an intentional redirection by Jesus. And the reason we leave these two sections connected is because of the conjunction, but. But helps us. It shows us here that the story is not over. And in fact, what's happening next is connected to what just previously happened. While they are all marveling. Oh yeah, he's the Christ. This is what he can do. We should have trusted his words, even in the face of evil. While they are doing that, They are all marveling. They are all astonished at his majesty, at his kingship, at his rule of God, of Christ, once again, bringing us back to the pattern of them knowing that he is God's Christ. And instead of just letting them marvel at this, the but here transitions us into Jesus's main point once again, which is don't stand there and be marveling at my majesty. If you believe in my majesty and I am that I am God, and you are marveling at all I'm doing, then let these words sink into your ears. Remember this again and again. Listen to my words. You will need to have faith in my words, even when again you face circumstances of evil that are going to come about. You must remember these words. You are marveling. You are looking. You are watching and you are believing in me. But just like this demon has come, so persecution and suffering will also come my way. So let these words sink in. You will have to live by faith in my words that I am going to be turned over and I'm going to suffer. Remember that I said that. Remember who I am and remember that when the evil comes that I said this so that you live by faith. Faith will be required again and again. I am the Christ. I'm about to be delivered. I am going to suffer. But like I told you before and like what was required with this overwhelming demon, you must live by faith in my words. You must believe me. You must do what you are trusting in, in, in in terms of what I have said, not in what you feel, even in light of overwhelming circumstances. Let these words sink in. So a key back to the main point, living by faith in his words. That's why he's telling them, let these words sink in. You have watched me. You have seen me as the Christ. Now let this sink in. I'm going to suffer. You will have to trust me by faith. So they heard him, they believe him, they remember them, that they live by him. Even when he's handed over, even when he looks like he's defeated, even when it looks like he is threatened beyond return, he's going to suffer. 
but let them not act in unbelief like they did here. Let them not have little faith like they did here. Remember his words, his very words that he is saying here and who he is. And it says that he kept the full meaning from them as they would not fully understand until Calvary. They were probably afraid to ask as we see the end of this passage because of the stark rebuke that just happened because of their lack of faith. They don't want to display that again. And so here he has displayed his awesome power and he is preparing them to head to Jerusalem. The establishment of Jesus that his followers, now that they have seen his testimony, that he is the Christ, that he must suffer. This is the establishment that his followers now must live by faith in his words. Jesus is establishing this really by the, for the first time. The concentrated period of proofs of the Messiah by miracles are behind them. This is Jerusalem now, we're going. He will teach them that they must live by faith in his words in the coming days to follow his ways. And church, just as we, as his people, because of knowing who he is, must live by faith in his words, even in the face of evil, because he is God. We live by faith, even when it seems like things are not going the way that they should be. And even when it means suffering. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your wonderful word. We ask that you would teach us to be people who live by faith in your words. That we would be people who trust you. Because you are God. Your words are right. Even when there is evil before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.